Please be seated. I don't know about you, but it just seems like a lot's happening already this year. We're only a 11 and a half days into 2020 and already a bunch of stuff going on. We got the, the impeachment thing, but that's been going on for 13 years. So uh, we still got that going on. The Australian fires. This is crazy. You look at Australia, you see all that landmass, and then you realize everybody lives along the coast. And when you see the fire map, it's all those fires along the coast. That's crazy. Then the whole Iranian thing, you know, they attack our embassy. We kill one of their generals. They shoot some, some missiles at our bases, but they try not to hit anybody so they don't escalate anything. And then they uh, accidentally, uh, they say, shoot down an Ukrainian airliner. That's a little crazy. The Vikings won a playoff game last week against a team they weren't supposed to. Wow, tough crowd. Oh, they lost yesterday, but they got beat by a better team, and they weren't supposed to win anyway. I'd just like to be a Ravens fan right now. But by far, the biggest news of the year, and it will be the dominant news story for this year and beyond, is Megxit. Were you as completely shocked as I was? Who saw this coming? The Duke and Duchess of Sussex? Oh, yeah, now everybody goes, oh. Or, or for, the, for the last four people that haven't heard, that's Harry and Meghan, Okay. Oh, then the last four people just nodded in acknowledgement. They're, uh, they're stepping back from being senior royals. How do you do that? You know, okay, uh, Grandma, I'm really not your grandson anymore. I'm once removed. I, I don't know how that, how that all works. And they want to become, wait for it, financially independent. They want to live in the castle. They still want the security detail, a couple other things, but other than that, they want to get jobs and be financially independent while living in Canada. It's fascinating, but it has nothing to do with our text this morning. <laughs> so let's, let's turn there right now. That's uh, Isaiah, we're in chapter 32. Uh, page 592 in the Blue Bibles. Before we get into the passage itself, maybe it'd be good to get a little context for, uh, for what we're going to be covering. This is really the middle of a four-chapter section of Isaiah. It started with uh, chapter 30, and then John preached on that back at the end of November, if you remember that far, uh, back in then. And then we had the whole Advent, Easter, or Easter, Christmas thing during December. And, and then Eric... Uh, two weeks ago, preached on 31, and then uh, we did the prayer service. We jumped ahead 30 chapters last week, and now we're back into this same passage that we've been in since November in chapter 32, and it's going to continue next week on 33. If you remember, 30 and 31 basically say the same thing. They say uh, Judeans, the people that live in Judah, we call them Israelites, we call them Jews, we call them Judeans. We use a lot of names, it's all the same people. They don't actually become Jews as referred to in the Bible until the New Testament, but that's where the term Jew comes from, from Judea. It's that southern kingdom. They're being told to, to not go down to Egypt. In fact, if you look at 30 and 31, the headings in the ESV, it says, don't go down to Egypt. 
Is that a travel ban or, or what's going on? No, it means they're not supposed to turn to Egypt to look for support in their situation. Now in 32, they're told where they're supposed to turn. And, and maybe we could get a little a visual on this to, to give us some perspective. Um, 50-50, Amy. Nope. Oh, was that me or you? All right, that was you. All right, this is a map of the area, and we're, we're right before 701 B.C. Remember, B.C. goes, goes the opposite way, 701, 7, 699, 98. Okay, that's how it progresses. Okay, so this is Assyria, big, big mass there. Um, and they've been, you know, raiding different places. What we're concerned about is Middle East. Here's the Middle East. Here was Israel, and here's Judah. There's Jerusalem right there. In 722, they came down and destroyed and took the northern kingdom. They didn't just conquer it. They literally deported the people, resettled, pretty much wiped those 10 tribes out. But they were stopped by God at the border between Israel and Judah, the northern and the southern kingdoms. But now we're in 701 or approaching 701, and they're at it again. And they've pretty much taken every city in Judah. The only thing left is the walled city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, or Judah, is thinking of what? Going to Egypt. Egypt's right here. It's a natural enemy of Assyria. This is not Syria, by the way. It's Assyria. And so they've been thinking of turning to Egypt, trying to get Egypt to help them against Assyria. And they're being told not to. So why are they being told not to? Well, really, there's two practical reasons one of which Egypt can't really help them. They're not that powerful at this time. And then if Egypt does help them, they're just going to try to exploit them anyway and make it to their advantage. That's what countries that are turned to for help tend to do. So in chapters 32 and 33, we're told they are to turn to, they're to turn to the, the Lord, God, Yahweh. I figured you'd get this one. Uh, Christian Sunday school, what's the answer to every question? Jesus, okay. Old Testament, answer to everything, God, Yahweh, Lord, okay? All right, just a quick reminder. And, and King Hezekiah, who's the king at this time, actually does turn the nation toward God. And, uh, and we see this in 2 Kings 18 and 19. And the Lord saves them a second time. In fact, the, the Assyrians get right to the walled city and they're yelling things in Hebrew to the people inside the city and, and God ends up wiping them out and saving Jerusalem again. Now, we've got to remember that God has, in the northern kingdom, warned them several times for hundreds of years, if you don't repent and turn back to me, God, Bad things are going to happen to you. And when the Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom, it was after hundreds of years of being warned and as just punishment by God. And the southern kingdom is in the same situation. God is saying, turn to me, turn to me, turn to me. Don't go to Egypt. Turn to me. Don't make a deal with the Assyrians. Turn to me. And we've seen that many times in Isaiah where he says he's going to destroy Assyria anyway, and he does. So that's our background. Now let's turn to our passage. 
Again, chapter 32, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice, and each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention, and the heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and the depraved the thirst uh, deprive the thirsty of drink. And for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the uh, plea of the needy is right. But he who noble is noble plans noble things, and in noble things he stands. We read that, and we're in Hebrew poetry, and we're in the Old Testament, and we don't always have the kind, and it's hard to understand, and we, we acknowledge that. So let's pick this apart a little bit, see if we can understand it. So as I'll behold, the king will reign in righteousness, and princes, those are the people that are under the king, will rule in, in justice. Old Testament prophecies, we see them as progressive or having different levels of fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment of this particular passage, this king of righteousness, does not have much agreement. Some people see that as Hezekiah, when Hezekiah turned back to God. Some see that in Joash, who's coming about 47 years after Hezekiah, the great reforming king that turns the whole nation back to God and and brings about powerful reforms. But in the longer scope, even though they don't agree in the short term, because there's other people uh, proposed for that, in the the longer term, there is almost total agreement that what, what God is talking about here through Isaiah is the Messiah. We saw that last week when we read ahead 30 chapters to, to 61, and we, we saw that foretelling of the Messiah that would come. This, this king, this Messiah, and the princes that rule under him will rule in justice. And they do that by being righteous. They are righteous in everything they do. And what does it mean to be righteous? It means they're right in all they do. That's righteousness, right. Now, I know all leaders think they're right, and they think they're right in all they do, and that's why they do it. They're not trying to do things that are wrong, but their thinking, because they're human, is flawed. The fallen human's mind thinks in a flawed way, in a fallen way. The foundation of their thinking, and thus their actions, is based on a flawed view of the world and a flawed understanding of what's right. The Messiah, who from the vantage point of this text will be Jesus Christ, from our vantage point, has, is, and still is today Jesus Christ, is always right. It's easy to say. And it's even easy in some ways to believe. But to live that way? Hmm. Not so easy. For the citizens of of Judah, again, who are called Jews in the New Testament, and we'll use that term, it's the same problem. 
You see, the Assyrians are very real. They're at their doorstep. They're threatening to destroy them, and they've, they've seen what they did to the northern kingdom, totally wiping it out, totally wiping out 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel 21 years earlier. In fact, the Judas are the only ones left, a, a tribe, the tribe of Judah and a half-tribe of Benjamin. They're the only ones left out of 12 tribes. The rest have been wiped out. And the Assyrians who wiped out those other tribes are now bearing. They're at their door. Having destroyed all the other cities in the country, they're at their door and they're threatening them. Now, we must remember the northern kingdom had been warned for hundreds of years to turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back to God. And they wouldn't. Now, the Jews, the citizens of Judah, are being told to trust in God and God alone. But God doesn't seem nearly as real to them as the Assyrians, or even the Egyptians. Oh, they're not foolish. They know the Egyptians aren't up for the task of protecting them from the Assyrians, but they seem so real, and they're so close. And at times, God doesn't seem so real because he can't be seen. And he seems so, so far away. Now, the Judeans aren't told not to fight. They are to fight. But they are to, they're to trust God and not a, a foreign worldly power. Is it any different today? If you're having a medical issue, we don't tell you not to go see a doctor. We do tell you to trust God. If you're having a financial problem, we don't tell you not to go get a job. But we do tell you to trust God to provide. So what does it mean to trust God today? I mean, truly trust him the world around us. It begins by studying the teachings of Jesus as found in the New Testament and living by them. Letting Jesus Christ shape our values, shape our thinking, shape well who we are. And if we allow him to shape who we are, that will determine what we do. Too often we get that backwards. See, the key to truly is truly believing, believing in God, believing in Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus Christ truly knows what's best for us. See, we can say all these things and we can sing all these songs and we can make ourselves feel good for the moment, but do we truly believe that Jesus Christ knows what's best for 
If we aren't in his word, then we don't. Because Jesus very much is found in his word. Now let's go back to our text and see what the results of that are. Verse 2, each will be like a hiding place. Each of these princes, these rulers, will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. It's not saying there won't be storms, but it says that the Messiah provides a shelter from the storm. That he is a place that we can go when things, well, aren't going well. And the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those will get a, uh, those who hear will get attention. The heart will understand. The tongue will speak truth. You see, the Messiah seeks to transform who we are. For those that turn to him, he opens the eyes and the ears so that they can see and hear the truth that he has to offer them. Not just some feel-good platitudes, but the truth of what it means to be a follower of his. And in so he gives them hearts to understand and knowledge of him and of what it means to follow him. And fools... See, too often we call fools noble people. We, we, we idolize these people that have no true truth to offer us. Because they're, they're somebody important. They've made a lot of money. They've done this. They've done that. And, and somehow we think, well, that they have something for us. When Jesus Christ comes into our lives, we see foolishness for what it is. We see evil for what it is. Generally, we think those that don't agree with us are fools. How can they think that? Why would they do that? Because we generally are the source of what we think is right. And people that don't see that are wrong. See, in those situations, we are as much as a fool as the person we're calling a fool. And the more we're absolutely sure we're right, the more we're usually wrong. What did I just say? See, the more emotional we get about an issue, the more intense we get about it. The more found the foundation of that belief is grounded in us, not in God. Pick any controversial issue. I don't care what it is. Just I don't, immigration, whatever it is. If we have strong issue, uh, feelings about that issue. They're grounded in how it's going to affect us. My circumstances. If this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens, then this will happen to me. And I don't want that to happen to me. And once we get there, we don't listen to God. In fact, we don't want anything to do with what God might have to say about that issue. Because we've become the God. 
We get so lost in our circumstances that we cannot see God's truth. He goes on, verse 9 on. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. A little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, your complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars, yes, for all the joyous houses in the exorbitant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted in the hill, and the watchtower will become dense forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Generally, we often judge how we're doing with God by how, how we're doing on a temporal basis. If life is going well for us, then God must be happy with us. If life isn't going well, then maybe there's a problem, so I should I get serious about my relation with God and try to fix it or manipulate it. That's certainly how the Israelites saw it, and that's what he's talking about. When the harvest is good, oh, I must be right with God. Those God is screaming at them through prophets, Turn back to me. Oh, my harvest is good. Okay, it must be good. And then as soon as the harvest is bad, they, they beat their chest and say, what's wrong? What's wrong? Now, God does cause or allow things to happen in our lives to get our attention, to discipline us, to, to cause us to, to stop something or start something. But we also know tons of people in this world that are extremely successful by the world's standards of money and power and the like, yet have no, no relationship with Jesus Christ. So temporal success is not the standard for where we are with God. See, people live on a roller coaster of life, a roller coaster of ups and downs, seeking to serve themselves and get what's right and do what's right for them. And they judge their relationship with God on where they're at on the roller coaster. When it's up, it must be good. When it's down, it can't be good. Yet God does not offer a life on a roller coaster. He offers peace and joy. Verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, in quiet resting places, and it will hail when the Forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all, all waters and who let the feet of the oxen and the donkey range free. When the Spirit comes, and that's the Holy Spirit. We saw that last week. When the Spirit comes, when he's poured out on us, with him comes Peace. So many Christians that I've met don't care about the Holy Spirit. 
fact, there's reason there's books written about being the forgotten God. But when you say some, something that God did something, you're saying the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not justified. That's what Paul says in Romans. How do we know that we've been saved? We have the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit brings is transformation and peace. But as John Oswald says, and we quote him a lot because he's written the commentary on this book. God cannot fill, fill with the Holy Spirit where he does not rule. The Holy Spirit cannot fill where Jesus Christ does not reign. See, when we don't have time for Jesus Christ, we don't have the Holy Spirit. And we want the Holy Spirit. Trust me, you want the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit takes control of our lives, we stop doing what we think is best for us and we allow Him, we believe, we trust that He truly knows what's best for us and we turn our lives over to Him. And with it, he brings peace, peace with God and peace with ourselves. So many Christians feel like they're battling themselves. I think that's one of the reasons why Kyle Edelman's book, Not a Fan, has been so powerful in people's lives and read so often because they, they, they know that they should be a follower of Jesus Christ, but they find themselves as a fan and they're seeking answers as to why. And as good as Kyle's book is, the answer is in this book. I gotta be honest, I, I don't know much about the royal family. In fact, I don't really even care about Harry and Meghan. But I do see some things in what they're doing that are similar Followers of Jesus Christ. Now, now, I don't think the Duke and Duchess are followers of Jesus. But they're seeking peace and are looking for it apart from the world that's been controlling them. It's the same way with us. If we'll accept the fact that the world strongly influences and seeks to control us. And if we truly believe that Jesus Christ knows a better way. Well, that's half the battle. In 2020, open his word. Study the teachings of Jesus Christ. Don't just read it, but study the teachings of Jesus Christ. And let it wash over us. And see what peace you find from the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we acknowledge that so often Egypt seems so much more real than you. But help us understand, Egypt offers us nothing compared to the peace, the righteousness, the wisdom that comes from you through your son. It's his name we pray. Amen. We invite the ushers to come forward to receive the offerings. and We invite you to join in as we sing.